today is part 25 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, A New Family. So I'd like to welcome everyone watching on live stream, also over in our video venue, saying hi to you. Uh, we ready to dive into this and get it going? Good, good, good. Excellent. So let's talk about what we are in in this series right now. We're on the Sermon on the Mount, and what Jesus did is he came in, sat down with all these followers, people trying to check him out, people very committed, some people just wanting to see what was happening, and he sits down and starts teaching them about how things really are, the kingdom of God. And when he did, he started talking about things like the Beatitudes, spinning everything on its head. Last week, one of our elders, Steve Burdick, came in and he preached and shared with you kind of what it would look like if it was said in today's language, right? Did you all enjoy Steve's preaching? He did a great job, right? Amen. I thought he did fantastic. So we're building on that. Now what Jesus is doing is he's redefining family. He's saying, I know that you thought family was this. I need to tell you that the spiritual family is this. And it's actually even more important and more powerful than blood connection. Now, this is completely against the Jewish way of doing things. To Jews, family is everything. Bloodline is everything. Remember, you are or are not a Jew in the ancient world based on whether you are what? Related to Abraham. If you're related to Abraham through your family genetics, then you are one of the chosen people. They were so focused on family lineage that they had hardcore records kept of who had who, who had who, who had who, right? It's all those boring passages of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. That is all to talk about how pure the lineage was because if you are related to the right people, you're good. What's fascinating is as much as God set up that structure, he also tempered that structure. He would say phrases like this, that when you get married, your spouse is now your closest relative, that you are to leave your father and mother and be united to your wife and become one flesh. That was unheard of in the ancient world. To them, getting a spouse was like gathering property you were connected to your family. You did everything for your family. If you wanted to get a wife, that was your own business, but don't let it mess with family. God said, that is not how we're doing it. Once you unite with your spouse, you fuse, become one, and family is redefined. Well, once again, he's redefining it all over again. Jesus comes into town and starts saying, the kingdom of God doesn't work on a basis of genetics. The family of God works on the basis of spirit. How do we become part of the family of God? How are we able to say phrases like, my father in heaven? How are we able to use phrases like, you are my brothers and sisters? Because the Bible says, to those who receive Jesus Christ as their savior, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become sons and daughters of God. That means you are transferred, you are born again into a new family and new rules apply. But that means there has to be a shift in identity. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you that was handed to you at the front door is simply this. God's family has a different identity. God's family has a different identity. Family is one of the most critical places where we shape our identity and we find out right and wrong, good and bad our priorities and our agenda. 
So Jesus is going to reset that for us today. Why don't we throw up the first passage on the screens? This is a combination of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speaking about the same teaching. It says this, while he was still speaking, talking about Jesus, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, seriously, check this out. Yeah. All right. Everybody's getting it now. Seriously, check this out. His mother and his brothers came to him, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. In other words, ministry was in full swing. It was slammed. They couldn't even get inside the house where he was teaching. So they stood outside, sent to him and called him asking to speak to him. And as the crowd was sitting around him, he was told your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking you, desiring to see you. Why were they there? Who are his brothers? We know his mom's name is Mary. There's no mention of Joseph. We assume he's passed away by now. Who are his brothers? Well, they're actually named in scripture. It's James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. There are four brothers with Jesus that makes five boys. And then the Bible said he had sisters, plural. That means at least two. There are seven kids in the family. We now have a single parent household because Mary seems to be the only one. For 30 years, Jesus was in this family and he's the oldest son. According to the ancient way of doing things, especially in the Middle East, the oldest boy takes over the father role. So for 30 years, he was heading up the family. But now all of a sudden, everything changed. He goes into full-time ministry. He starts doing stuff they don't agree with. He starts obliquing from the way they normally do it. The Bible is very clear that his brothers did not believe him to be the Messiah until he came back from the dead. That means his entire ministry, he lived in an unbelieving home. That means nobody bought in on it. As a matter of fact, even Mary, who had been visited by an angel, didn't understand what was going on with her son. In Mark's account, eight verses prior to this, he said, and, they, and Mary and the brothers came to get Jesus thinking he was out of his mind. They even think he's crazy. So what are they doing here at this house? They're probably here to come get him and say, man, this whole ministry thing, it's weird. You're way over the top. It's constant. Oh, now what? You're the healing guy and the miracle guy. And the, you know, oh, you're going to preach about the kingdom of God. You know what? What you need is more sleep. Right? So they're coming probably to help him out. But what's interesting is he leaves them outside the doors. Is Jesus being rude? Well, yes and no. It depends on what you define as rude. Because really, if they came from home, they live in Nazareth. That's 15 miles away. If your mom and brothers walk 15 miles and show up where you're teaching, you don't invite them in for a glass of water. You don't invite them in to sit down. You don't invite them in right away. What does that really say? This is not the first time he did this. As a matter of fact, he did it when he was 12. Do y'all remember that story? Here's what's funny is it says that when Jesus was 12, Joseph and Mary take him down for a festival down in Jerusalem. While they're down there, they get all done and they're all ready to leave and they would go in big caravans. So everyone would head back north together. Well, in the caravans, the kids kind of hang out here. The moms hang out here. The dads hang out here. Well, they're into their journey about a day and Mary and Joseph touch base and they go, hey, so where's Jesus? 
What do you mean, where's Jesus? I thought you had him. Well, I thought you had him. Are you telling me we lost our kid? Uh, yeah, they start panicking. They run around. They head back to Jerusalem. And on the third day, they find Jesus. He's a 12-year-old. And where is he at? He's in the temple. He's sitting down in the temple going back and forth with the religious leaders of the day. They are livid. What are you doing? You scared us half to death. Why are you here? I thought you were with us and blah, blah, blah. And Jesus calmly replies, why are you so upset? Isn't this where I'm supposed to be? Mom, dad, you know why I'm here. I'm supposed to be doing my father's business. I'm just hanging out with my dad. And if I'm in dad's house, that's kind of how it's supposed to go. I don't mean any disrespect. And it says after that, he was obedient to his parents, right? But he shut them down for what reason? The agenda of the father. Because that superseded his parents' agenda. Here it's happening again. His mother and his brothers were concerned about him, but they were on a different agenda. And he said, guys, we're not doing that right now. I understand you have my best interest in mind. I understand that you have mixed motives sometimes. What I'm telling you is I'm doing what my dad asked me to do. So we're not going to be disrupted from that says this, but he replied to the man who had told him that his family was looking for him. Who is my mother? Let's go deeper. I mean, you said my mom and my brothers are here. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who are those closest to me? If we're really going to redefine family here, looking about at those who sat around him, which meant his followers, his disciples, he said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and what? do it. Let's pause right there for a moment. The family of God is made up of people who hear the word of God and do it. Not who just read the Bible and pray. For many of us, we are saying, I don't want experience to dictate my theology. I don't want experience to dictate my Christian life. So I'm just going to spend time in the word and prayer Intimacy will not be built there. It will be built in experience. Why? Because intimacy is created by shared experience. In other words, Peter had a different level of intimacy because he got out of the boat, walked on water, and failed. That created a whole different... Jesus, remember that one time that we walked on water together? He's like, you mean for that two seconds before you bailed out? Yeah, I remember that. But that creates that family feeling, right? It's, it's the failures together. It's the victories together. It's the, it's the shared memories of remember when we saw that or remember when we did that or that's how you create bonds. So as far as just sitting in our home, becoming brilliant with information, that is actually not going to create any intimacy. Every Easter, I'm always shocked. You think I wouldn't be after all these years. But I watch these TV shows about the historical Jesus and you have these scholars on these TV shows that know more about the Bible than everyone here combined and yet they don't even believe in Jesus. How is that possible to know all the information and have no connection? Because they never walked with him. They never did what the Bible told them to do. They never carried it out. They never engaged with it. There was no crazy Christianity for them. It was all between a plexiglass window and God, right? The other thing that's interesting is it says this, and stretching out his hand toward his, what? Disciples. Do you understand what a disciple is? 
A disciple is one who follows Jesus. Twelve of those disciples were later to be deemed apostles. It is them and more. But disciples mean followers. It's Jesus' crew, right? Here's why that's so important. Look at where it goes from here. And he said, pointing to them, here is my new family. Here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God, my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Why is that so shocking to a Jewish audience? Because two of those are female. When he defines out his disciples, he uses two female gender points and one male mother and sisters and brothers. That is unheard of for a rabbi. Rabbis do not have female followers. They do not have female disciples. But Jesus did. He broke the norms and said, in my family, there are men and women. In my family, there are boys and girls. In my family, I have disciples that are women and I have disciples that are men. And they are equal in my eyes. That's a pretty shocking statement to make. But understand... In God's family, things are done a little bit different, right? Let me give you a quick cross-reference point. Um, I don't need you to turn here. Or I'm going to have you turn to Matthew in a moment. But just listen to this passage in Luke 11, 27 through 28. Luke 11, 27 through 28. It said, And as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, she was trying to say, man, your mom must be super blessed because she's related to you. He said, I don't care about genetics. I care about spiritual connection. You want to talk about who's blessed? Let's talk about the people in the kingdom of God. Let's talk about those who have been empowered by me, rescued by me, saved by me. Later, he will say those empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He has all these things of saying, those are the blessed ones. The blessed ones are in the kingdom. The blessed ones are not ones that are merely genetically tied to Abraham or genetically tied to me. They're the ones spiritually tied to me. Because heart matters more than genetics. What's the point of this whole portion? We as a family are heavily connected. And in practical ways, we are spiritually more connected than our blood ties. Why? Because if indeed true bonds are fused through doing life together, not all of us live in believing families. Not all of us live in healthy, functional families. Some of us realize that if we need someone to pray for us, we have to go outside of our family and have our friends pray. Some of us need to realize that we're in our lowest time. We can't call on our family because they don't get it. We will need to call on our friends. The reason why we use phrases about the church like family, family, family is because of how we are to relate to one another, how we're to rely on one another and how we're to be interconnected. But you cannot be family if you don't know one another. Give me an example. Uh, Not that long ago, Pastor Rick Cole, right, of Capital Christian Center, uh, the pastor there for many years, he and I had recently become friends over the last year or so. I never knew him prior to that. Well, on Easter, this last Easter, he fell and slammed his head against some concrete. It fractured his skull and it had internal bleeding. I immediately got the text and I started praying for him with passion. I prayed for him as if he was my brother. 
Why? Because we're buddies now. And anything that happens to Rick happens to me. And so I all of a sudden started praying passionately for him. And as he finally got out of ICU, they realized his face was paralyzed on one side. And it had been paralyzed then for a while. And what was so wonderful is that he said, I want to call my family to pray for me. And so he called Bridgeway and came over and had us pray over him. Why? Because we're family. You know, three years ago, I would have heard about it and I would have been, oh, that's sad. Now it's personal. That's what family means. Family means that when something goes down wrong, you take it on yourself. If anything happens in this church, it's on all of us. It's not just individual. Amen? Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15, page 823. Matthew 18, 15 in the Bible. Notice that every time we go to a passage that's specific and not combined, we shut off the screens, we go to our Bibles. Why? Because you don't have screens at home that have the combined stuff, so we have it here, but you do have a Bible at home, so I'm going to teach you how to read through that. Here we go, Matthew 18, 15. It says this, I'm assuming that if you grew up in the church, you've heard this taught a lot, but what's intriguing is I wonder if you had it taught wrong. Maybe we did. This is what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Y'all heard this before? What's it talking about? Is it talking about church discipline? Is it talking about how to restore a broken relationship? Is that what you were taught? Well, that's what I was taught. That's always what I assumed. Is that the right reading of it? Maybe. I'm going to give you a couple options, right? You're in the option church. Where I'm going to say, listen, on this one, I have no idea. We can look at it two ways. Let me spin your mind on this one because brilliant scholars are on both sides of this argument. The earliest and best manuscripts do not have the phrase against you. Let's read it again. It says, verse 15, if your brother sins, stop, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Does that change the meaning? Dramatically. Now we are no longer talking about discipline. Now we are no longer talking about restoration of a relationship and reconciliation. We're talking about helping a brother who is caught in sin himself. It's actually completely focused towards his restoration between him and God. And it has nothing to do with you other than he's family. We're tracking on that. So which one is the right way? I don't know. What was Christ's original intent? I don't know, but here's what's interesting. It doesn't matter. Because regardless of which one it is, the same rules apply as to how to handle it. Because this is how we do things in this family. So let's walk through it, regardless of either side of which you're on, because it still matters. Here's how it would sound. If your brother, that's singular, your, if your brother sins, whether it's against you or just sins in his life, go and tell him his fault. 
Notice that it doesn't say, go and tell him what you think is wrong. Go and tell him it's fault. It better be really wrong. A lot of things that we try to convict each other over are matters of opinion. Let me use a silly analogy for you. Let's say that you uh, have been hanging out with a new friend. We're going to name him Pete. And you go over and you hang out with Pete and you go, I've noticed that Pete has a card problem. He's a bit of a gambling issue. And so, Pete, I need to go confront you. So you have a coffee date with Pete. And you said, Pete, we need to talk about your card playing. We need to play, pray about this whole gambling addiction that you have. And Pete's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they're like, well, I saw you and you seem to have a lot of card decks around your house. And I noticed that you've been kind of playing these a lot. I even saw you teaching your kids. He said, well, you're absolutely correct. That is the game Go Fish. <laughs> so yes, you're right. I probably do have a card problem. I've been playing Go Fish with my three-year-old a lot lately. You're absolutely right. Okay, here's my point in saying that. You have perceived out to be a problem. You're like, dude, cards are cards. Wait, what? What are you talking about? No, that's not right. What do you mean? Okay, in you, you do not have liberty in the area to play Go Fish. All right. There are other Christian brothers and sisters that have full freedom to play go fish and there's not a problem. And God is not having antacid tablets over it. You know what I mean? So when you go and tell someone their fault, you better be sure that it is actually a fault and it's not just something that you have a hang up about. Right. And so how are we ever going to know that? Well, first of all, you're going to go personally and quietly to them to help sort it out. Just the two of you. Why? Because gossip is a big problem in churches. We are like dry tinder on a hot day. The minute something fires up in somebody's life, if we know each other, instantly it's on the prayer chain. You know what I'm saying? Now everybody knows what's going on. All right, we got to be careful of that. It says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Either you restored him in his own problem or you restored your relationship. That, praise God. But if he does not receive that correction, if he does not listen, take one or two other people with you. Now, are they just supposed to be two of your buddies so you can gang up on him? Or are they supposed to be two parties that are respected in the community, that are solid and that have just as much power to correct you as to correct him. Take two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that's an Old Testament quote of Deuteronomy 19.15. Here's why I think two witnesses are critical. Let's say you want to correct Pete on his go fish habit. And you go up and you said, Rick, James, I need you to go with me. Right? Yeah, Rick James, you like that? Anyway, that's not important. <laughs> Most of you don't know who Rick James is. You go over and Rick and James come over to your house and they said, what's the problem? You go, I got to go confront Pete, man. He's got this gambling problem. He's been playing go fish like nonstop, right? And that's where Rick and James look at you and go, dude, hold up. Before we leave, we got to clear something up with you. You're a freak. Something is wrong with you. <laughs> this is not an issue. You have a serious problem. Now, I would hope that Rick and James clarify you before they ever go back out and reconfront Pete. I don't think Pete needs correction in that area, and they don't either, and so they clarify it for us. But are we ever going in with humility that we might be wrong? Oh, that's a different story. It says this, if he refuses to listen to them, let's say it is legit, they confirm that it's legit, and they go with you, then tell it to the church. This is a troublesome passage because... Some scholars don't believe Jesus said this. 
Now, I, I personally think that he did, but I think that it came through Matthew's perspective. Why is there a challenge? Because the church has not even been established yet. So how do you take it to the church leadership when there is no such thing as a church leadership because we haven't even got to Pentecost yet? We're way early in Jesus' ministry. He has yet to leave, be born again, start the Pentecost, get the hierarchy. There is no church leadership. So is that really what he said? Here's what I think he intended and what he actually said. If you have a problem, bring it before the family. When we gather together, we are a family. Let's make it a family issue. If things aren't being resolved, then the family needs to come together and figure this out. Now, later on, once we get to Paul, who sets up elders, and then we start seeing all this structure be developed in the book of Acts, once we get to that level, then we start having a hierarchy of authority to make decisions on behalf of the family. But that does not remove every individual's responsibility to hold one another accountable. If you leave it only to the paid people in church, we're going to miss everything. We do not have the bandwidth to police the entire church. We don't have an interest in doing that. So if you observe something or something occurs to you, our family handles things internally and says, you hurt me. Do you realize that if you don't say something because you're trying to be nice, it actually makes it worse? Here's why. If someone hurts you and you suck it up and say, I'm going to be a nice Christian and I'm not going to say anything, you actually in your mind think that they should know what you feel. Then the next time they do it, I can't believe you did it again. They're like, do what again? I didn't even do it the first time. You did it again. And you start stewing on it and your niceness turns into explosion. Because you've been stuffing it this whole time. In the family of God, we take things from the dark and put them in the light. Then it can be seen for what it really is. Maybe it's a misunderstanding. Maybe it's something that shouldn't even be handled. Maybe it's not a big deal. But we have to talk about it. You can't assume everybody knows what you know. You can't assume everyone's offended at what offends you. So in this family, we talk about our problems. We don't sweep them under the rug. Is that more messy? Yes. Is it healthier? Yes. I understand the complication. I'm just telling you, the way of Christianity is not stuffing, it's talking about it. Should it be talked about with grace, love, mercy? Yes. But should it be talked about? Yes. It moves on. If he refuses to listen even to the church... That's a final failure where there's a complete breakdown and a refusal to submit. The problem is no longer the sin issue. The problem is now an obstinate heart. If it gets to that point, let him be to you, that's singular, that's not the church, that's you personally. That means everybody has a responsibility on this. Let him be to you individually as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, does that mean that they're excommunicated, unforgiven, and written off? It can't mean that because Jesus spent time with who? Tax collectors and sinners. Who wrote this book? A tax collector. You think that, what, are we going to miss that one? He's like, treat him like you did me. 
In other words, now they're a project. Now there's someone to love on, seek after, and restore. Listen, if there's ever church discipline that removes someone from the congregation, if they're a believer, it is always temporary and it's always for the purpose of restoration. There is never a scenario where you write them off and they no longer exist to you. We are not the mafia. We're a family, right? All right, let's keep moving. Then it says this, verse 18, truly I say to you, what's that one? Listen up, this is deep. Remember? Listen up, this is deep. Truly I say to you, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the second time Jesus said this. The first time he said, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and I will give you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It was not just for the apostles. He now says it to his followers and says that is the case with all true believers in the kingdom. What is this binding and loosing thing? I have no idea. I I don't think we've even scratched the surface. What I think about when I read this is ambassador language, that you are the emissary on behalf of the kingdom of heaven, that when you write a check and it's in alignment with the father, he cashes it. What I think is that we haven't even scratched the surface in this church of utilizing the power and authority that God has given his kids. I don't think we even understand what it is. I think everything we engage with in this world, we kind of back off and go, I don't know, could happen, could not happen. God gave us an authority. God gave us a power in the same way that he allowed the Holy Spirit to empower Jesus here on earth as an example. We too have the indwelling Holy Spirit, so we might have power and authority here in this world too. Our prayers should matter and should be prayed with authority. Right? Amen? Amen. And, but the problem is, is that we don't. We don't utilize any of that stuff. We're not writing any checks. Now, I get that there's limitations where God's going, that's a bad check. I'm not cashing that. That's weird. Right? I mean, there's going to be times when dad's just going to go, and the answer to that is no. All right. But why are we not advancing forward with what he called us to do? We are to advance the kingdom of God. And allegedly, when we advance with his authority, spirit, and power, the gates of hell should not prevail. But we tend to sit back and go, that's a big door. I don't know if we should attack that one. God's saying, man, what do you think we're doing here, kids? Go in, crash it, let's go. Right? I'm with you. Anyway, I'm off on another tangent. Here we go. Verse 19. (laughs) Verse 19. We're only going to be here for two hours. (laughs) Praise God. Uh, Verse 19. He said, again, I say to you, now this is plural. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. Uh, I would assume most of you have been taught that this is a prayer passage. Okay. Here's the trouble with that in context. It is not, it is actually an authoritative passage because the word pragma that says, if you ask anything, that word pragma in Greek is mostly used to refer to judicial matters. If you ask anything to be locked down, to be handled as a corporate family, then the father will then do so. 
In other words, we tend to think, hey, you know what? We have more power in prayer when we get together. And if there's two or more, then God is with us. First of all, that is true, but that is not taught here. Prayer matters. God matters. There is power in prayer. I'm a big prayer fan, right? But this passage is actually about authority in matters of discipline. Where two or more are gathered, meaning where there is unity, where there is agreement on what is right and wrong to be done in the church on the authority of God in alignment with his will, then Jesus is present as the judge to lock it down. Let's be careful of not taking things out of context. Make sense? Now, are we allowed to say the Bible teaches that prayer is powerful? Yeah. Is there more power when we get together? Yes. Just look at other passages for it. Don't look at this one. All right. Let's grab one more thing. Uh, Matthew 5.13. We'll close with this. Matthew 5.13, page 810. Back up in your Bibles a little bit. Matthew 5.13. He said, you, which means my followers, true Christians, let me give you your identity. We are in the God business. We are in the people business. And in this family, here's how we act. You, my followers, are the salt of the world in which we live in. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What does he mean that we are salt? Well, he at least means two things, the two primary uses of salt in the ancient world. Preservative and flavoring, right? Christians are the preservative in this world. If you take all the Christians and the power of the Holy Spirit out of any given circle of influence, you have a rough time. So, for example, when we pulled all Christians out of media, what happened? It got pretty nasty. When you pull Christians completely out of politics, what happens? It gets nasty. When you pull Christians out of schools, what happens? It gets nasty. The preservative is no longer there where the presence of God is there. So we are to be sprinkled throughout the world, not just as flavoring of, wow, God is here. Things are changing. Prayer is happening. But we are also preservative to say God is still holding down the fort and advancing his kingdom in this area. The problem is that most of us spend our entire lives in a salt shaker. You know what I'm talking about? We didn't get sprinkled on anything. We're not stopping the decay of anything. We are not advancing the kingdom anywhere because we're completely content to hang out with our buddies just doing our things, but salt was not meant for a salt shaker. Salt was meant for the world, right? Here's the other thing. Let's say there are some scientists in here and you got a little problem with the lack of scientific knowledge in the Bible, (laughs) right? Uh, excuse me, Lance, uh, salt by definition is sodium chloride. It cannot lose its saltiness because it is a stable compound. And if it's a stable compound, then the Bible is wrong. Okay. Listen, Jack, let me explain something to you. Here's the deal. In the ancient world, they did not have purified sodium chloride. They did not have purified salt in their area. They would gather up Dead Sea area salt, which was mixed with impurities that over time, although it looked like salt, the actual sodium chloride would leach out and then they'd only have impurities left. Once you get to that, it's not really salt anymore. What do you do with it? You throw it away. All right, great. Let's move on. Verse 14. 
You, my followers, my children, my family are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Three quick points on this. Number one, the lamps in the ancient world were not electricity based, of course. They were a wick that was in olive oil that would soak up the olive oil and they would stay lit, but they had to be lit by an outside source. Just as much as electricity has to have a power source, lights are not lights in and of themselves. They carry out the light from another source. The purpose of what I'm saying is we as Christians do not go out on our own accord and accomplish anything. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You will never bear fruit disconnected from the power of the Holy Spirit. You will never advance without connection to Jesus. So we are to shine brightly because of his power. He lit us. He keeps us lit. Also, what I think is fascinating is lights are meant to be seen. A hidden light is there's no point in being a light. So as far as this whole undercover Christian thing, that's just between me and God. It's garbage. You did not get saved so you could just get to heaven. You got saved to transform the world. So get out of your private life and let's start going public. Yeah? All right. All right. Uh, The last thing that I find is interesting is it said, and when you do your good works, and the word good works there is not just good in quality, it's good, winsome, attractive, and beautiful. It's a different word. When you do... Jesus type stuff out into the world that people are attracted to. They don't even know what to do with it. They may hate you. They may love you. When you do Jesus type stuff, the father is glorified, not you. Here's the problem. Many of us, when we do ministry, we become the good guy, right? So one of the things that has been a challenge throughout ministry is that because I am using my voice, a lot of people will attribute things to me. There's nothing eternal that's going to happen from me. It's always going to be God. It's always going to be his power. I want everyone to say, have you ever been to Bridgeway? Man, God is moving there. Not, have you ever been to Bridgeway? That's a great church. Wait, what? No, no, no. God's moving. God is the important one. He's the one that's behind everything and behind the scenes. It's not, oh, those people are great. Now, are we allowed to say they're wonderful, lovely people? Yeah, absolutely. But do not uh, steal God's glory. Do not allow it to stop with you where everyone's impressed by you and they don't look through you. They're allowed to be impressed by God using you, but we are merely a vessel. The true glory goes right through us into the one who's actually doing the impressive work, and that is the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and, yeah, praise God. Let's go ahead and wrap up our time just by praying. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit's power even more and more upon this place, that, God, we might glorify you, that we might do the good works that you gave us to do, that we would bear the fruit that you produce in us, and that the whole world might become enamored with you. God, would you remove us out of the equation, and even though you're so sweet to let us partner with you and allow us to do things with you as our dad, God, sometimes we get a little bit caught up in the me, me, me. 
So I just pray, Father, that you would teach us how to do life with you and teach us how to do life together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.